Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. All right, everybody, if you'll um, take out your Bibles and open up to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. It's nice to have the Conants back with us tonight. I'm assuming little baby is back there. I see motion indicating so. Well, let's uh, look at Psalm 3. We're continuing our trek uh, through the Psalter. And so let me read the Psalm and then uh, we'll begin. This is a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, And he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people." May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, What we said in the last two weeks as we've looked at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is that those two psalms really are one unit. And and as we looked at them, we looked at the the fact that Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed and the last line of Psalm 2 ends with the word blessed. And even though they weren't written at the same time, Uh, The editor who put the psalms together put those two psalms as kind of the introduction to the book. And those two psalms together really tell us the message of the book of Psalms. Now, most people think that psalms is just uh, a conglomeration of a bunch of different songs put together. Uh, But in reality, and hopefully we'll see this more and more as we go through, the book of Psalms has a theology and it tells a story in the way that it is Put together, And so we said Psalm 1 is really concerned with the first major emphasis of the, the psalmist, and that is that God's people delight in his word and live fruitful lives, right? So uh, blessed is the one uh, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the word of God. And so that first concern of the Psalter is that God's people love his instruction, love his teaching, and walk in it and are fruitful. The second emphasis in the book of Psalms is about the Messiah. And so we said, looking at that last week, that there are these many nations uh, who stand against God and against his anointed one, that is his Messiah. Uh, And they're saying, let us burst his bonds apart, let us take away their chains from us. It says they plot uh, in their minds about getting rid of the, the chains that God and his Messiah have on them. And that word plot in Psalm 2 is the same word 
meditate in Psalm 1. So whereas the godly meditate on his word day and night, the wicked meditate on how to free themselves from God's reign and his rule. And so we said that these two themes are really the heart of the Psalter, that God's people live fruitful lives in response to his teaching and that all people everywhere come under the gracious rule of his Messiah. Because remember how Psalm 2 ends, blessed is everyone who finds their refuge in him. And so we're to live according to God's word and we're to find our refuge in God's Messiah. And if you put those two things together, that really is the theology of the Psalter. Well, what happens from here on out is really we deal with book one of the Psalms. Look with me, if you will, <coughs> excuse me, at Psalm 42. Now, I don't want you to look necessarily at Psalm 42 itself. I want you to look at the two words that are probably in all of your Bibles right above Psalm 42. What are those two words? Book 2. So with Psalm 42, you begin book 2, which means we're in book what? 1. And here's the thing. This is why I say that the Psalms not, don't just individually, they're not just good songs to sing or good chapters of the Bible to read. They're telling a story because from Psalm 3 through Psalm 41, you have almost entirely psalms about the enemies of the Messiah being overcome. All of them, 30 of them, have the word enemy uh, in it. Um, and all of them, except for three, I think, are, uh, 37 of them are attributed to David. And that's why we say that this tells a story, because in the first book of the Psalms, where we see the Messiah is going to set up his kingdom and take his rule, the first 41 of them are all about David overcoming his enemies and establishing his kingdom. So that's the first sort of step. You, you follow what I'm saying? And so as you read these psalms together, you don't just need to read them individually, atomistically, as one psalm after another. You need to see that this, the idea here is the people sing through these songs is the Messiah is building his kingdom and subduing his enemies. Well, in terms of enemies and situations, Psalm 3 is a doozy. Because you don't begin with Psalm 3 with David, the anointed one of God, overcoming these pagan Gentile nations. You actually have David being attacked by whom? His own son. And so from the very beginning, just right off the bat, uh, this Messiah, that is David, who stands in the Old Testament, really in the place of Jesus in the New, right? Um, we have David being overcome by enemies and his kingdom being under threat, but this Messiah trusting that God was going to deliver him. Remember what happened with the story of Absalom. And if you want to read this sometime, go to 2 Samuel chapter 15 because that's really where this story happens. And basically what occurs is David commits a terrible sin that he talks about in Psalm 51, and that is the sin that he committed with Bathsheba leading to his son Solomon. Now, eventually, uh, one son died. But what we see the Lord saying through Nathan the prophet when he confronts David about that sin is Nathan says, because you've committed this sin, there's going to be a sword that lands on your house. And we see that begin to take place almost immediately because David has a daughter by one 
marriage. He has a son named Amnon by another. And pretty quickly, and the Bible is just a book full of reality, Amnon falls in love with Tamar, his stepsister, and he rapes her. And what happens is David's other son, Absalom, takes his revenge on Amnon and kills him. And Absalom goes off into hiding, eventually, years later, to come back uh, to Jerusalem. And Absalom is upset at what his dad did. He's upset at the way he's been treated. Apparently, Absalom was like a beautiful man with long, flowing hair, and like all the ladies liked him. He looked good on a horse, apparently. Uh, And so once Absalom is back in the city and sort of back in his father's graces, what Absalom does is he begins to win over the hearts of the people. He goes out to the city gates, and he listens to the people's problems, and he renders judgment, and he says, don't bother the king with this. The king doesn't want to be bothered with your uh, petty concerns, but I, Absalom, I'll listen to you. And he wins the heart of the people, and over a period of uh, four to six years, Absalom actually wins the heart of the people and goes to Hebron and proclaims himself king. So David's own son is committing treason against him. And because so many people are with Absalom now, Absalom's on his way back to Jerusalem, and David and his advisors say, well, we better hightail it out of here uh, because we don't want the city overrun when Absalom comes back. I don't want there to be a fight. I don't want there to be a war. I'm just going to leave my throne, and I'm just gonna, he's going to come in and take it. And Absalom comes in, and he does some really wicked and terrible things. But Psalm 3 according to this inscription here, is what David writes when this happens. David has to go uh, down out of the city and up uh, uh, over, I believe it's the Mount of Olives, and he has people cursing him for his blood guiltiness, a guy named Shimei, uh, while he's doing it. And it's just a terrible scene where David, in advanced years, is thrust out of the throne uh, because of his son. And so that's the the context of Psalm 3. One writer says this, it was David's most traumatic, humiliating experience in his entire life. Everything that he had spent his life working for had suddenly unraveled. Many whom he had thought were his allies and friends had abandoned him and sided with his rebellious son. And the most painful wound of all was the treachery and betrayal of Absalom. It brought home to David his own failure as a father. One son murder, a daughter raped, and the murderer now after his own father's life in addition to his kingdom, David's life was falling apart. And so Psalm 3 really is a psalm that helps us to see how we should respond and the kind of song we should sing when it feels like life is falling apart and when others look at us and say, God's abandoned you. And I say this a lot when we deal with the Psalms, but I just want to mention it again. Isn't it amazing that God gives us songs to sing in these kind of circumstances? In other words, the Lord's basically saying through Psalm 3, sometimes it's going to feel like I've abandoned you and everything is falling apart and nothing is going your way. When you feel that way, here's what I want you to sing. Here's what I want you to say. Here's how I want you to pray. Again, the Psalms always amaze me in that the Bible is just so real And it's not a Pollyanna book. God says, when you feel like I'm your enemy, here's the words I want you to say. And that is an amazing thing. So let's look at this psalm together. First thing we're going to look at is David's issue. 
Uh, then we're going to look at David's response, and then we're going to look at David's prayer. What is David's issue? Well, it's this. Now that there are many who are rising against him. Think, think about this, and it's even a little bit more emphatic in the original language. See how many times many happens in the first two verses? Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David was driven from his throne, subject to indescribable humiliation by his own son. And not only were they saying uh, we need to take his life, they were saying basically it really appears like God has abandoned him. Because they're saying there is no salvation for him in God. Many were saying, you're a hypocrite, David, you're a scoundrel. How can you claim to follow God? Uh, your kingdom is a joke. God's not on the side of such a phony. They were screaming these things as he was running from, um, from Jerusalem. There's a guy throwing dirt in the air and just calling him a, a, a murderer. And, and he was calling him a murderer, you know, because he was a Benjaminite, and he was still bringing up Saul with David. So everything was collapsing, and they were still bringing up old wounds. Charles Spurgeon said this, Doubtless David felt this infernal suggestion that God had abandoned him to be staggering to his faith. Uh, if all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from the earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. Now, the first thing we need to think through as we look at this is a, a, a bracing truth. And here's the bracing truth. God allows his people to experience deep pain in terrible circumstances. We don't need to back away from it. We don't need to shy from it. We need to just kind of stand and let that wash over us for a minute that God allows his people to experience deep pain in terrible circumstances. He lets us go through things uh, to such a degree that we might even be tempted to believe that God is no longer for us. And so David has many, many, many who are surrounding him on all sides and yelling things at him like, there is no help for you in God. That's his issue. What's his response? Well, what's the first word in verse 3? In my trend, in the ESV, what you got? But, all right, all right, best word in the Bible, right? Uh, there's always bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, comma, but. Uh, and so David, his response to all of this in terrible pain, with everybody ganging up on him, David's response is basically to say, but you, O Lord, but you, O Lord. You're a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Just like David said many, many, many three times, in these verses he says, Lord, 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 three times. He doesn't look away from the Lord. He looks to the Lord. And what we see from this verse, if we're good Bible readers, is we see a bunch of reminders of the covenants that God has made with David and with his people. 
So for instance, when it says there in verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, that's that Hebrew word Yahweh, right? Uh, Yahweh. That is the name that God gave his people when? Through Moses at the burning bush, right? Moses said, all right, so you're going to free these people and you're going to bring them out of Egypt so that they can worship you? Well, they need to know your name. What's your name? And the Lord said, my name is Yahweh. You tell them what my name is. My name is Yahweh. So the very fact that David said Yahweh is, again, a reminder that he's part of the people who are in covenant with the Lord. Then he says this, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Now, I want you to very quickly flip to Genesis 15. You're a shield. That Hebrew word, the first time it occurs in the Bible is in Genesis 15. on page 12 in my Bible. All right, it's 10 in Jeffrey. Somewhere between 10 and 15, you're probably okay. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your what? So again, David is picking words from the covenantal history of Israel. He says, Yahweh, you are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Why do I make such a big deal about covenants? Um, we, don't, we don't think about this enough, I don't think. Um, your relationship to God is not based on your intuition it's not based on your ideas or understandings. Your relationship with God is not based on your understanding of God. Your relationship with God is based on a covenant that he's made with you. Right? And I, I think sometimes in just our day in and day out relating to God, we either think that the way that we relate to him is sort of based on uh, our response to him or based on our feelings about him, I don't know about you, but I tend to feel like God is feeling towards me like I'm feeling towards me at any given moment. Um, and what we need to remember is that the way that God relates to people is always through a covenant. Now, what's a covenant? Well, you know what a covenant is. It's a series of promises sealed in an oath, right? M many of us have been through a covenant. What covenant have we been through? Marriage, where we stand before and we say in front of people, these are my promises to you. These are my promises to you. The preacher says, I now pronounce you man and wife. And you're locked in, right? Um, you want to say that a little happier, Miriam. <laughs> All right. Well, think about this. At the end of the day, the reason that even in the worst circumstances we can trust God is not because we just sort of know that's how he is. It's not because our intuition it's not even because our faith. We know who God is and we know what he's going to do on the basis of the covenant that he's made with us. He's made an unbreakable deal. Right? And a deal is a terrible... He's, there's no other word for it. He's made a covenant. Uh, and that word covenant comes from the Hebrew word to cut. He's, he's, he's a blood brother. He's become a blood brother to you. In other words, not because of your circumstances or because of your feelings or because of your righteousness or because of your goodness, but because of his promise him alone. And Hebrews tells us that the security is never in us, 
the security is in this, that God can't lie. Right? That's what Hebrews says. Because God cannot tell a lie, and the Lord has nothing higher to swear by than his own name. Right? When I swear, I can say I swear on my grandma's grave because that may be something sacred that I can be held to, or I swear on the name of my firstborn son. God has nothing outside of himself that's greater or more sacred that he can swear by, and so he swears by his own name, and he enters into covenant with us, and he makes promises to us, and it's those promises that are to sustain us in the deepest, darkest days, not your intuition, not your feeling, but your confidence that God has made promises to you. And so he's going to see you through. And so when David is in this most embarrassing and worst time of his life, he goes back to where we should all go, and that is, I'm feeling terrible. It seems like everything is falling apart, but God has made promises to me through Jesus, and he's sealed them. And so he, he goes to there, and because of that, he says, Lord, you're a shield about me. And in the Hebrew, it's, it's a weird preposition because shields generally only protect how many sides? One. But he says here, you're a shield all around. You're a big old sh You're just like a, a cover, right? My sons, when they play video games, inevitably you can pick up something where you drop it on the ground and it just forms this ray shield all around you so you can't get shot, right? Something like that is more of the picture of what's going on here. That the Lord, you're a shield all around me. There may be many, 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 but you, O oh Lord, are a shield all around me. He says, you're my glory. And you're the lifter of my head. In other words, the reason that David was able to cling to the Lord and his word in these circumstances is because when David had everything, the Lord to him was still the only thing he had. I think that's what's implied by that idea of you're my glory. You're the thing that puts the shine in my life. You're my glorious one. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says. What we need very badly these days is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God as completely now as they know they must do at the last day. For each of us, the time is coming when we shall have nothing but God. Health and wealth and friends and hiding places will be swept away and we shall have only God. To the man of pseudo-faith, that's a terrifying thought. But to the real faith, it is one of the most comforting thoughts the heart can entertain. God was his glory, and so when everything else fell away, David was still able to say, you're my glory. And he says, you're the one who lifts my head. He left Jerusalem dejected, despondent, and depressed. 2 Samuel 15.30 says he hung his head in shame, but he is confident that God will elevate his face and restore his hope. And so David's issue is that there are many against him. David's response is, but you, O Lord, and he reminds himself of God's covenant to him. And on the basis of that, he prays. And what does he say? He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Verse 7. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. It's interesting, in verse 1, there are many rising up against David. Do you see that? Many are rising against me. And in verse 7, he calls for the Lord to do what? To rise up. Um, 
In verse 2, David's skeptics had said that God would not deliver him. Uh, but here, David uses the same verb to say salvation belongs to the Lord. He's turning all their things against them, against them. And David prays, maybe a prayer that many of us don't want to relate to, uh, but in some ways a prayer that many of us should relate to. David says, you strike, you, and the, the tenses here in the original language are difficult to kind of work out. Uh, it doesn't say, you're going to strike all my enemies on the cheek. You're going to break their teeth. He's basically saying, Lord, you've done these things in the past, so I trust you to arise again and do what you need to do because salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Here's a question we have to ask. Why would David pray this? Why would David pray, you need to destroy my enemies and you need to save me? Well, again, it has to do with covenants, doesn't it? Because God had made a covenant with David and the covenant that God made with David is, um, you're going to be my king, and your sons are going to be my kings, and it's through the kings that are going to come out of you that I'm going to save the earth. So when David prays a prayer like, strike my enemies on the cheek, we may think, goodness gracious, that's a very vengeful thing to pray. I don't think Christians should pray that thing. But if David is cast off the throne and his kingdom is ruined, what's at stake? The salvation of all people. And David is one of those people for whom to pray this sort of thing is the most loving thing he can do. Do you follow what I'm saying? I have to be on that throne. My son has to be established. His kingdom has to come. So, Lord, you need to break the teeth of these uh, wicked people uh, or your salvation's not coming. Salvation belongs to you, O Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. And so David, in the midst of very difficult circumstances, because he knows God's promise, uh, and because he knows God's promise to him, is able to pray to the Lord, is able to remind themselves of God's great covenant to him, uh, and is able to ask the Lord to arise on his behalf and to save him. Well, let's apply this very quickly, and then <clears throat> uh, we'll be done. Somebody's texting me. I never know if that is an emergency or not because I figured people would know not to text me. Let's apply this. First, turn your phones off in church. Um, secondly, um, know this, that the most determinative thing in your life and the most determinative thing in my life are not the circumstances that I'm in, but it's the promises that God made to me. The most determinative thing in my life are not the circumstances that I'm in, but the promises that God has made to me. There are a hundred ways that our lives could completely fall apart. We could have a child rebel against us. We could lose everything. We could lose our health. There's a lot of bad things that can happen, but none of those things are determinative of your future or of your long-standing joy uh, the thing on which we base our life and our hope is not that we have everything together or that we're comfortable and I love having everything together and I love being comfortable so I'm getting convicted as I say this uh, but that God's promises for us are true 
because they're sealed in the blood of Christ. And so come what may, we can pray to him, we can lean upon him, and we can say, you're my glory, and you're the shield all about me. Uh, and on that basis, we need to realize uh, that, that God's covenant and God's promises, just as they were made not only to David, but through David in the Old Testament, that these things have been sealed uh, and assured uh, through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because God has vindicated him, uh, we can have an even more sure hope uh, that the Lord is with us. Remember, just like God did not spare David uh, great pain, but in the end uh, vindicated him, in the same way the Lord uh, took the real Messiah through all kinds of things and has promised salvation through him and has lifted him up and vindicated him above all things. All of his enemies are going to be made his footstool so that God's salvation can go to the ends of the earth. And because of Jesus, we can be doubly sure of the promises of God. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us in our dark days to trust in your covenant, to believe your word, uh, Lord, and to realize that when we're in dark circumstances, our prayers to you are the gateway to praise. Because as we review your name in prayer, as we review your promises in prayer, uh, Lord, we're reminded of your great, deep faithfulness. And so, Lord, help us, even now when things are not bad, to have you as our glory, uh, as the one thing that we need, uh, and not to find our defense in any of the things that could be taken away, but, Lord, to find our defense and our shield in you and you alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.